0: yeah so we uh so we're starting a new series in Ezra uh, tonight, so we'll be looking at a few different things here as we get started to see uh, of course, Ezra is uh, Old Testament, and so there's some things that we'll see with Ezra that I think will be encouraging for you and certainly tonight, as I was preparing, uh, I think there'll be a few things that may be challenging you'll certainly probably learn a couple of things as we go throughout and so for the next four to six weeks we'll be discussing what uh, God has for us in Ezra. So, if you have your hand out here, the first blank: uh, God's desire for His people has always been to walk in relationship with Him. From day one, Adam and Eve in the garden, God's desire was that they would walk in relationship with Him. One of my favorite verses is uh, in Genesis, where the Bible talks about Adam walking with God in the cool of the day. And in walking with God, what we do is we worship Him and God's desire is that we depend upon Him. And so God's desire from the very beginning was that that our relationship would be contingent upon those things, that we would worship Him, that we would walk with Him, and that we would depend upon Him. Uh, We were talking uh, here a few weeks ago. I was talking to my kids about, we were talking about some stuff, and I said, you know, one of the most dangerous things that you can do in your life is learn to live on your own. You see, everybody, unfortunately, everybody's got the ability because of the lies of your flesh to be dependent upon yourself, right? To do what you want to do, to build your life, to build it how you want it, to listen to what you want to listen to, to act the way you want to act, justify what you want to justify. And everybody's got the ability to do that. And a lot of people are really good at doing that. And I believe a lot of people go most of their life, I think some people go all of their life without hearing a single thing from God, solely because they are dependent upon themselves, not dependent upon God. You see, after the nation of Israel split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom was overtaken by Assyria, and they were assimilated into their culture to be no more. Now, this happened, of course, in B.C., about 650 B.C., 700 B.C., and here, you know, the nation of Israel did not become a nation until 1948 again. And so, the northern kingdom, and we went through, uh, if you want to study some more about that, we did a series called Under Authority, and we talked about how that uh, came to pass in the last few uh, the last few uh, sections of that series, we talked about the northern kingdom and their failure. And we talked about the southern kingdom of Judah and their failure. You see what happened when the northern kingdom, the 10, uh, the 10 tribes, when the northern kingdom failed, there was only the southern kingdom left. And so the southern kingdom of Judah, you would think that they would look to the north and say, hey, this didn't go very well for them. We better right the ship right? You know, it's when something bad happens to somebody that you know, and you're doing the same thing that you're, they're doing. You say, oh, you know what? I better pay attention. I probably should stop doing what they just had a catastrophe for doing. But that's not what happened. You see, in 2 Kings 17, verse 22, the Bible says, "...the people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight." As he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Fascinating. So here's Israel, the northern kingdom, completely removed. Now all that we have left is the southern kingdom. And it wasn't until 605 B.C. when the Babylonians invaded the southern kingdom of Judah, did Judah cease to exist. Second Kings seventeen says, uh, verse nineteen: Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. So, big brother, if you will, led little brother astray; our best friend led best friend astray. And so now, instead of having the remnant of God's people, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people from Genesis chapter twelve, they do not exist anymore. And so now we see that they're taken off into captivity. You know the story in 605, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, you can read that in Daniel. He invaded Judah and he carried the Jewish people off into exile. Now, uh, there, there is some belief uh, that Ezra actually wrote Chronicles. Uh, If you read the last part of 2 Chronicles, the last two verses of 2 Chronicles are the exact replica of the first two verses of the book of Ezra. And so for that reason and a few others, there are some of those who believe that Ezra actually wrote Chronicles. And this is what 2 Chronicles 36.10 says, in the spring of the year, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, sent and brought him to Babylon with the, pre- with the precious pre- vessels of the house of the Lord. And he made his brother Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against his brother, King Nebuchadnezzar, who made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel." It goes on to say in verse 16, but uh, they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people. Verse 20, "He uh, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, so those who weren't killed, and they became servants to King Nebuchadnezzar and to his sons. Verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. So all of this, you know, a brief, brief synopsis of the history of how we got to this point, all of this was because of what? Because it was to fulfill the word of the Lord because He warned them, if you don't stop what you're doing, there will be consequences. If you don't stop what you're doing, there will be consequences. So all of this was a result of the rebellion towards God by the nation of Israel. Now, You know, all of us, you're sitting here tonight and you say, hey, well, um, you know, that's not me. I'm not rebelling against God. You see, sometimes I think we can relate to this because of, of this way. You see, sometimes we find ourselves in places that we don't want to be. I think that may be the next blank on your handout. Sometimes we find ourselves in places where we don't want to be. You see, sometimes we do things, uh, maybe intentionally, maybe circumstances bring us to those points, and we find ourselves in a situation where we don't want to be here anymore. You see, the Babylonians had taken the Israelites captive, and now we get towards the end of this 70 years of captivity, which is where we pick up the book of Ezra, and the Israelites have been in captivity for 70 years. They didn't want to go to start with, and so they find themselves now almost assimilated completely. Into this culture, and you know the famous verse jeremiah twenty nine eleven right I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord, plans to prosper, you know so on and so forth. Everybody loves that verse. that verse was written that verse that verse was spoken during exile. they were in exile in Babylon when God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. You see when you put context around those verses, you might not put those on the wall, right. And so here we see the nation of Israel is somewhere that they don't want to be. They're somewhere that they're not supposed to be. They're somewhere that they don't have to be. But because of their rebellion, this is where they find themselves. You see, it could be circumstances for you and for me that guide us where we don't want to be. Maybe maybe it's our own sin that gets us there. But nonetheless, what happens in every situation is that we choose to follow lesser things. And Israel has found themselves in this moment. They've drifted away from God and they find themselves distant, exiled, and in captivity. You see, this happen, This happens often for us in our personal slash spiritual lives. You see, distraction, not obedience. Distraction, not obedience, is the first step to captivity. For some reason, these are not on the handout. I mean, on the board. But distraction, not disobedience, is the first step to captivity. Is to be distracted. It's to not be able to be focused on the task at hand of what God has called you to. And so what happens with the Israelites is the Israelites have found themselves in a situation to where they allowed themselves to be distracted and it ended in their captivity. You see, Israel as well as Judah became distracted with the blessings of God. They became so self-consumed with what they wanted that they refused to hear anything different. They refused to hear what God was telling them. You see, as we look around in the great nation in which we live, the land of America, right? We had an election, what was it, yesterday? And, uh, you know, we live in America and we, we enjoy the most prosperous nation probably in history, right? Right? And we look around at all the things that we have, and I believe in a lot of ways what's happened to the nation of America is that we've been lulled to sleep by the goodness of God, that God has given us all of the things and more that we could possibly ever imagine. I mean, there's nations that don't even have an indoor plumbing now, and we live in America to where we have anything that we want at the expediency of whatever rate we want it. And so we've been lulled to sleep to believe that we've done something to warrant or to earn all of these good things that God's given us. And I know we don't want to hear that a day after an election day. I mean, we don't even know what happened yesterday, right? There's still no results. But here we find ourselves in, in this uh, situation of prosperity, if you will. And a lot of times what people do is they mistake that for something that they've done, something that they've earned, you see, when we think about these, uh, th- these distractions, what it is, is it's us believing something that's not true about ourselves. God used the prophets Jeremiah, he used Zechariah, he used Haggai, he used Daniel, he used Ezekiel, all to communicate to the nation of Israel, you better stop what you're doing. You better stop doing that but yet they did not listen. And so in the midst of God continually speaking, they still could not hear what God was saying to them. So as I thought about these distractions, I thought about, you know, what does that look like for us? Because we, in a lot of ways, we're distracted. We're distracted from the things that God has in store for us. And so when we think about what this looks like, I thought of a couple of things of the distractions that you and I may be distracted by. Well, the first thing that I think is easy for us to be distracted by is people-pleasing, right? That we want people to like us. We want people to be happy with what we do. And so I think a lot of times what our culture does is they do what's acceptable. They do what everybody else wants them to do. Listen, if you end up doing everything that everybody wants you to do, you'll end up doing nothing that God wants you to do. Right? I'll say that again. Maybe you're not listening. It's very quiet in here tonight. If you keep doing everything that everybody else wants you to do, you'll end up doing nothing that God wants you to do because you're going to be focused on whatever other people like and you're going to be focused on what pleases other people instead of focused on what pleases God. So self, uh, ple- pleasing other people is a distraction. The other thing is self-absorption. We live in a culture of if it makes you happy, do it. Do whatever you want to do. And so this self-absorption becomes a distraction for us because why do we do that? We We begin to do things in our life that we want to do instead of what God is calling us to do. Now, I can tell you in my own life, God calls me to do things and sometimes I don't want to do them. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. Sometimes God calls us to do hard things. Sometimes God calls us to do things that we don't desire to do. And if I'm absorbed with myself, guess what I'm doing? I'm not doing hard things. I'm not doing things that I don't want to do. And it becomes a distraction in my life, and the focus is off of God, just like the nation of Israel, and it becomes on me. Well, how about this? How about the easy road? Distraction. A distraction that I do the path of least resistance. Couple uh, couple weeks ago, a month or so ago, we were reading in Second uh, Corinthians, and uh, Paul makes the comment. I believe it was in Second Corinthians, uh, but Paul makes the comment. He says, um, "A door, a great door, a, a door of opportunity has opened to us, and there are many adversaries." I mentioned this a few uh, weeks ago in a message. It's just God has so impressed this on my heart that the things that God calls us to do, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's gonna be easy. If a great door of opportunity is open and there's many adversaries, that doesn't sound easy to me. But so oftentimes we take the easy route because why? Because that's what the flesh wants, that's what the flesh desires. It's a distraction. Uh, The fourth thing I thought about was discouragement. We get discouraged, and what happens? We begin to have a pity party. You know, our culture has become this victim mentality culture and, you know, woe is me and something's always wrong with me and something's always bad culture. That is a form of discouragement that we would say, you know, maybe God called you to do something just like the nation of Israel. They were to be representatives of God himself. He called them to be ambassadors. And what happened? They began to be discouraged And what did the discouragement do? It caused them to do what? To focus on what they did not have instead of on what they did have. Remember the nation of Israel? God, everyone around us has a king. But we don't have a king, God. We want a king, God. We want a human king. All the other nations around us have one. And what are they doing? They're distracted by discouragement because they're not like everybody else. Well, guess what? You're not supposed to be like everybody else. Red flag number one, if you're like everybody else, right? If you say that you follow Jesus and you're like everybody else, that's a red flag. You're supposed to be different. God says that you're set apart, that you're sanctified, that you're supposed to be different than people who don't follow Jesus. But we get discouraged, and what do we do? We begin to be distracted. The last thing as I was thinking about this was noise from the enemy. Hey, you're not good enough. Hey, you can't do that. God doesn't love you. God would never use you. Fill in the blank, right? Noise from the enemy. There's no way that you could do that. And one of the things that we'll see as we continue to progress through the book of Ezra is that they faced a lot of opposition and there was a lot of discouragement. And so what did they have to do? They had to decide that their why Was much greater than their what. You see, in life, when God calls you to do things, you have to be very sure of what God called you to do. And the reason I say that is because if you know why God called you, the what doesn't matter. Right? Why did God call me to do this? What what is it that God is calling me? God's calling me to do this? Well then the details of that are irrelevant. Because the creator of the universe has called you. Think about this. And so when the enemy says that you're not good enough or you can't do that, noise. All that is is noise. But it becomes a distraction if we forget why we are doing what we are doing. And so what happens when we are distracted is it leads to complacency. It leads to complacency. You see, when we become complacent, we stop seeing what God wants us to see. You see, one of the things that you notice, I remember early on uh, in my walk with the Lord, studying the book of Colossians and Ephesians, and, and one of the things, especially in Ephesians, that you'll notice is that there's, it's all it's walk. It's walk. It's walk. He talks about measuring your walk and walking with the Lord. And, and I remember reading that and thinking, well, you know, what about running? What about running? It doesn't say run. It says walk. Well, what about Sitting. It doesn't say said, it says walk. In other words, there's this steady progression forward that God is moving in your life, that God is growing you, that he is working in your life. There's this steady progression. There's not complacency. But yet what we often see is that people who to uh, coin the term Christianity, mistake it really for religion because Christianity is a progression of transformation. Religion is a progression of complacency. Is that you just move from one place to the other place to the other place, but you're still sitting everywhere you go. I mean, think about it. Now, I can pick on Baptists because we're Baptists, but Baptists are notorious for what? For changing churches, right? Oh, I don't like this church. I want to go to this church. Well, I don't like this church anymore. I'm going to go to this church. Right? And so we're just moving one place to the other, but we're not doing anything anywhere we go. But when you're a, a child of God, what's happening in your life? God is transforming you, and you are different. God is moving you from who you used to be, Ephesians chapter 2, to who God wants you to be, who He created you to be, Ephesians 2.10. So we, can't, we cannot allow distraction to allow complacency in our life. You see, when we're distracted, the door for complacency swings wide open in our lives. Complacency causes us to accept things as they are, depressing the hope that things could change or get better or that God could do anything about it. Look, the last thing that I need to hear from people is problems and God can and, oh, this is bad. Oh, the election didn't go my way or whatever. No, listen. Listen, just like we'll see here in just a few minutes with Ezra, God is in control of everything. And whether you get what you want or not, it doesn't mean that God is not in control. It does not mean that. You see, complacency leads to what I believe is one of the most dangerous dangerous spiritual conditions known to man, and that is indifference. You see, complacency leads to Indifference. I I do not like it when people say, Well, I just don't care. Yes, you do. You should care. You should care. God made you to care. You see, when we become indifferent, it's because we're complacent that we're not doing anything. And in our complacency, we just say, Well, it doesn't matter anymore. It matters. Everything that you do matters. God created you. You're still breathing. That means you matter. But when we become complacent, indifference begins to take root. And we do nothing. We do nothing. We become indifferent about everything around us. We have no passion. And what that leads to is no purpose. We never accomplish anything because we're indifferent about everything. Well, here's what Jesus said about that. He says in Revelations 3.15, I know your works. You're neither hot Nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You've heard that verse before. That's what indifference is. And God says, No, I did not create you to be indifferent. Complacency leads to this indifference. You see, indifference and complacency lead you to where the nation of Israel now finds themselves in our text today in captivity. You see, when you're indifferent, it leads you to captivity. Complacency leads to captivity. So distractions lead us to complacency. Complacency leads us to captivity. So here the nation of Israel is captive. You see, in, uh, in Daniel 1.1, some Jews had been deported uh, to Babylon in 605 B.C., the second wave happened in 597, uh, which uh, Ezekiel was a part of that group. And then Jerusalem was destroyed in 587 B.C., and the rest of the Jews were carried on to Babylon. And so we see Jeremiah and Ezekiel explaining these things uh, that were to pass, and yet uh, they did not respond. Why? Because they're, in, they're complacent. They're indifferent. You see, I believe that some people are in uh, captivity And they don't even know it. People are walking around that you and I see that are in captivity to themselves and the situations that they find themselves in. And I think a lot of people find themselves in captivity and become so accustomed to this life of prison, if you will, that they live as though it's normal and that it can't ever change. Well, that's not the God that you and I serve. You see, I thought about this captivity. Well, What does that look like for us? You know, we talked about the distractions That lead us into complacency. And this complacency leads us to captivity. Well, what does captivity look like today? You know, we're we're probably not going to be like the Babylonians and, you know, take captive the Israelites. That's probably not going to happen. But what does it look like for you and I today when it comes to captivity? Well, I think a, a couple of things bring us into captivity. Well, the first thing that I believe that holds a lot of people captive, bitterness. Bitterness. That you say, well, things didn't go the way that I thought they should. Things didn't turn out the way I wanted them to. You don't know what they did to me. And so people begin to hold grudges and bitterness takes root. Bitterness will destroy your life. It will destroy your life. You see, when bitterness takes root in your life, you are in captivity to whatever the situation was ever how long ago it was that it happened. And I know people that still talk about things that happened 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago in captivity to the bitterness that has taken root in their life. Not only is is it bitterness, another thing that, as I thought about this, well, selfishness will hold you in captivity. You know, one of the greatest things that you can do in the kingdom of God is serve other people. But when you're in captivity to selfishness, you're not going to serve other people. You're only going to do what benefits you. And so selfishness is a big, big key to captivity for a lot of people. The third thing that I thought about was, well, what about lack of joy? Lack of joy tends to keep people in captivity. That they can't see the good in what's happening. And so the, the lack of joy or the bitterness or the selfishness, whatever, has caused them to be in that situation prevents them from having joy. The last thing that I thought about, and I think this could be, and we've done some messages on this before, but is thoughts. Your thoughts can hold you captive, right? Fears that you may have, things that run through your mind that maybe have happened or that you fear would happen. And so as as we see this leading into captivity, I don't want you to say, oh, well, you know, that doesn't apply to us because, you know, no one's going to come and take us captive and prisoners. Yeah, but spiritually speaking, there's so many ways that we experience this even today. And so Israel is in this captivity. Well, the good news is, as we're going to discover through Ezra, is that God keeps his promises. He is sovereign over all of our circumstances, and He will always provide a way out of captivity. So, if you're here tonight and you say, Hey, I can identify with some of those things, well, there's good news about to come for you. You see, God promised the nation of Israel that in 70 years He would return His people to their land. And in 539 BC, He came through with His promise. Cyrus the Great overthrew the Babylonians, and he began to send Jews back to their homeland in waves. And the first wave went in 538 B.C. Zerubbabel took uh, the first wave of exiles back. And in 458, Ezra led the second wave of exiles back. And so Ezra is writing this to remind us of all that God has done. And so as we get here to Ezra chapter 1... We see them returning to exile. And so as we, you know, as we preluded into what we're talking about tonight, I thought of this, you know, as we're moving into Ezra 1, I thought to myself, well, what does that look like? You know, we, we can be distracted. We can be in exile. So how, how do we move out of captivity? You know, all of us have been there at some point or another in our walk with the Lord. We've been distracted, right? We, we've been complacent. Maybe you're in captivity even today. We've been in those situations. So what does it look like? How do we move out of that? What what does that look like for us moving from where we are in captivity to where God wants us to be? Maybe how do we move from indifference to caring? Well, the way that we do that is that we overcome our distractions by having direction. That we've got to have direction in our life. We've got to be moving somewhere. We've got to be moving somewhere. We've got to have purpose in our life. This is what the Bible says in Ezra 1.1. It says, in the first year, we finally got to Ezra 1.1, all right? here right? We're there now. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word, uh, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So in other words, Jeremiah told you this. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Listen, if you have ever worried about an election, read Ezra 1.1. Read Ezra 1.1. What does that tell us? It tells us that God does whatever he wants, whenever he wants, by whoever he wants, right? Right? It doesn't matter who's elected or who's not. I believe you should vote. It's a, it's a, it's a right that we have in our land. But it doesn't matter. It, it does not matter what happens in the world today. You can rest assured that whoever is elected, it is because God allowed that to happen. God does whatever He wants, whenever He wants, through whoever He wants. And so God decided in fulfilling his promise, because he's a faithful God, that he was going to return the Israelites back to their homeland. And guess what he did? He took a pagan king and he said, I want you to send them back. And what does he do? He starts sending them back. And so we see these waves of people begin to go back. God stirred the heart of Cyrus to accomplish his kingdom purposes. Now that ought to get you excited that God is using whoever he needs to to accomplish his kingdom purposes. In Isaiah 45, 1, the Bible says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, listen, to his anointed, who is that? To Cyrus. Well, now, wait a minute. I thought I just said that Cyrus was not a believer. What, What is Isaiah telling us here? Isaiah is saying, the Lord said to his anointed, to Cyrus, you see, what God is showing us here through Isaiah is that God is referring to Cyrus as the anointed one or someone who God selects to accomplish his redemption. That is what Isaiah is showing us here. Isaiah says in 44, 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be Laid. So Isaiah is prophesying 150 years before Cyrus actually sends them back that Cyrus will send them back. Isn't that amazing? I mean, there there's so many things that are fascinating about uh, Daniel and Isaiah, and, uh, but this is fascinating. That 150 years prior to the nation of Israel returning back to where God originally had them, he prophesied through Isaiah that it was going to happen. And so we see through the direction of the Holy Spirit that this is taking place. Now, there are those you can read that say, Cyrus had no idea that Isaiah said that. But then there are those who say that Cyrus was actually, and Josephus wrote, he was a church historian, he wrote that Cyrus was shown the prophecy in Isaiah 44, and he wanted to fulfill it. So in other words, God wrote it. So Isaiah, so uh, through Isaiah, so Cyrus, Cyrus would read it, and that Cyrus would fulfill it. Isn't that amazing? And so we see uh, them moving back to where their uh, their homeland. And so we see this moving away from distractions or moving towards direction. You see, when we live without purpose, we drift or we're distracted and we end up far from God. But when we're focused on who God is and we're focused on what God has done for us, we tend to live with purpose in the kingdom and for the kingdom of God. Wouldn't you agree with that? That when we have intention, when we have purpose, we tend to be we tend to move forward. And so the question tonight then would be this. If we're talking about moving forward, Away from distractions and into direction, well, then we would ask this question tonight. What is it that God is calling you towards? Where is it that God is moving you? Right before service tonight, I came right out of a meeting into this. We were we were talking about God moving in someone's life and God calling them to do something. And so the question is: what is God calling you to do? You see, God is moving. God is active. God is calling people to move in directions, to be a part of the things that he's doing. And so it's just a matter of us being a part of that. But when we're distracted, we don't see that. We don't we don't hear that. We don't respond to that. So what is it then that God is calling you to do? You see, God called the Israelites to go back to their homeland. And we see that uh, Zerubbabel Zer- led the first group. And then we saw Ezra led the second group. And then we get, and eventually we'll get here in the series, we get to Ezra chapter six and chapter seven. And between those two chapters, there's a 57 year gap. So the people began to respond. They had purpose. They're going to go back. They're going to rebuild the temple. And so they had passion for what God had called them to do. And then we get to chapter six and there's this 57 year gap. Well, during this 57-year gap, guess which book was written? Esther. Esther was written. And so as I began to think about that as I was studying, I thought, so we're talking about direction, right? Having motivation to move where God is calling us to move. And when we have motivation to do that, well, why are we doing that? Well, I got thinking about Esther, and I thought, well, you know, what is the significance of that? Well, I thought about Esther 4.14. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You've heard that before. Right? That God is calling us to do things at specific times for specific reasons. For, for specific purposes. So why is it that you think that God created you now? Why is it? Why is it you were born when you were born? Why is it that you live where you live? Why is it that you have the family that you have? There's a reason for that. It wasn't random. It wasn't by chance. God orchestrated and ordained every second of your life. And so when we don't live with purpose, what we're doing is we're trying to circumvent what God has ordained for us from the beginning of time, that he created you for a purpose, that you would do something, that you would have direction, that you wouldn't be content with just showing up and sitting and listening and leaving, but that you would say, God, what is it that you're calling me to? Why are you showing me these things? Why are we going through Ezra, Lord? What is it that you're trying to show me through Ezra? What is it that you're calling me to be a part of? You see, Ezra, Nehemiah, all of these guys, they lived with purpose. So the question is, what is your purpose? Not just in life, in general, but how about right now? How about today? What is your purpose for today? What is your purpose for this year? What is God accomplishing in your life this year? What is God calling you to right now, this year, in this season? You know, as we talk about D groups, we we have our leader meeting December 4th. And so, you know, we're looking towards next year and what God has for us next year. That's part of purpose. As I thought about these questions, I thought about that very thing is, God, what is it for me, for Matt? God, who is it that you want me to be a part of their life next year? Who I've been praying all year. God, who is it that you want me to be a part of their discipleship process? Who do you want me to disciple next year? Whose life do you want me to be a part of? You see, that's what, that's what living with purpose looks like, is being aware of what God is doing and being a part of what God is doing. And so we see these Israelites that are moving back. And so in verse 2 it says, Thus says Cyrus, he's issued this decree, and this is what he said. He says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And To which I say, praise the Lord. Fantastic. You know, um, I, I was told I went to Liberty University. And, uh, and so we lived in Lynchburg. And so when I was there, uh, there was this building, uh, this business complex. And it was owned by people that didn't follow the Lord. They were known to be notoriously against God. And so, uh, you know, Jerry Falwell, never, if you know anything about him, he didn't stray away from controversy. And so he purchased the building to be a part of Liberty University. And when he purchased the building, there was this huge, you know, the media was always on Jerry Falwell. And so there was this huge uproar about, hey, Uh, you know, you can't, you can't buy that building. And so the story goes that uh, they said, you know, if if you give that money to those people who don't follow God, they're going to do ungodly things with it. To which Jerry Falwell responded, the devil's had the money long enough. The devil's had the building long enough. Now it's time for God to do something with it. Right? And so in our own lives, we see that, you know, God is using other people to accomplish his purposes. And listen, It doesn't have to be believers. God will accomplish his purposes. So if you live in a neighborhood full of people that don't follow God, praise the Lord. God will accomplish what he wants to accomplish in the midst of that. And it might just be that he put you in the middle of all of those people so that he would reach those people through you, right? That you would live with intention. And so Cyrus says, hey, God wants me to build him a house, so I'm going to do it. Whoever's among you, verse 3, of all of his people, may his God be with him. Wouldn't it be great if tomorrow morning this was on Fox News? Wouldn't that be awesome? To build me a house, that all of God's people be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold and goods and beasts uh, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now, does this sound familiar? Right? The Exodus. And so they're leaving Egypt. And what happens? All the neighbors give them all the plunder. So the same thing's happening here. They're leaving Babylon. They're going back to Israel. And he says, hey, all you neighbors of the believers, I want you to give them everything you got. And so you'll see a list in Ezra of all the things that they give. And so God uh, God orchestrates this whole circumstance because he gives direction to God's people and to Cyrus. You see, they're, they're living with purpose. We can never live with purpose, though. We can never live with purpose if we never allow our hearts to be stirred. We have to, we have to be open. We have to be available. God, what is it that you're stirring my heart about? The Bible says that God stirred the heart of Cyrus, that he led him to what he wanted him to do. And so as you, as you come to church and you, you know, I sit in the pew sometimes when the other pastors preach. And, and my desire when I come in is, God, what is it that you're speaking to me about? Might my heart my heart be stirred, God, for what it is that your word wants me to know today, right? And so, when we come in it 's not that we would just check a box, that, but that we would say, "God, when I spend time with you in the mornings, God when I spend time in your word, God when i 'm with my d group, God when i 'm in service, Lord, I want you to stir my heart for the things that stir your heart, that I would be aware that I would be intentional and that I would be drawn to the things that you are drawn to, and so God clearly stirred the heart of Cyrus, but we can never. Live with purpose if our hearts aren't available to be stirred. You see, when you're indifferent, what's happened in your life is that you've become calloused to the things of God. When you're indifferent, you've become calloused. And so what God's doing through the nation of Israel is He's stirring their hearts to move back to what He originally called them to. Well, how does God do that for you and for me? Well, God stirs our hearts through compassion and through conviction. He stirs our hearts through compassion and through conviction. Think about it. Just, just think about it logically. You saw a situation. You saw someone who was in need. Think of the last time that you saw someone in need. Maybe they had, maybe they had a flat tire. Maybe you, know, you saw a mom in the grocery store with two or three kids that you know, kept dropping everything you needed to help. Maybe you saw someone who was in need and, and you fulfilled that need. Why did you do that? Because you had compassion on them, maybe maybe you were in a service, or maybe as I started with at the beginning, that you saw something bad happen to someone that you love, and you're doing the same thing, and you know that you need to stop. And you said, "Hey, okay, I'm going to respond to that. I'm going to stop doing that, or I, I'm going to seek help for that." What is that called? That's called conviction. You see, God stirs our hearts through compassion and through conviction, and when we're indifferent, we have no compassion. We don't respond to conviction. You see, that's why I said it's the most dangerous place for us to be, is to be indifferent. But the way that God stirs our heart is he causes us to have compassion. Think about Rescue 100. What happened? There was a great need for children in our community. And our church showed compassion towards that need. And we moved in the direction of that need. And we acted on that need. Or maybe there was something that happened and we felt God was convicting us to be a part of that. That we needed to change course. That we needed to do something different. That's how God stirs our hearts. Because look in verse 5. It says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers of the houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites. Everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all that were with them aided them with vessels of silver and gold and goods and beasts and costly wares besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king even got in on it. He brought vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and he, and he had placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus brought these things out in the charge of Mithridath, uh, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, uh, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, and so he gives the list of the things that they brought out. So everyone got involved in this. Because why? Because they had direction. Why did they have direction? Because God stirred their hearts. You see, not only did God stir the heart of Cyrus, but look in verse 5 again. In verse 5, look what it says. It says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin. So, all the heads of the houses, all the fathers, what do they do? It says, the priests also and the Levites, everyone whose spirit that God stirred. It's the same word that's used in verse 1 with Cyrus. So, God stirred Cyrus's heart, but he also stirred the hearts of those that were leading their families and leading the churches. And God calls the people around them, including Cyrus, to show compassion and generosity towards his people. You see, often the same is true for you and for me that God will stir our hearts in compassion to reveal something to us or to lead us to something. He'll show us compassion. You see, compassion can often cause us to reevaluate our own circumstances. I remember the first time I went to Brazil. And uh, seeing the poverty in Brazil and, you know, I I have a water cooler at my office and uh, I remember thinking, there's no clean drinking water here. I can go to the corner of my office and get as much water as I want. There's carpet everywhere, you know, we walk. But when you go into a house in Brazil or, you know, or you go into uh, anywhere, even in a lot of the churches have dirt floors and it's just dirt everywhere. And I remember being so moved, like I, I remember coming home and trying to communicate to Melanie, uh, my wife, you know, what, what happened. And I, I began to cry about the, the situation of where, what just happened. That, that I went to this place that people are full of joy and full of love for the Lord, and yet they literally have nothing I mean, some of the places that we go, they live in places that are, they dig clay out of the ground and get sticks and they make a house that they call a house that you and I, you know, we, we had the luxury of so many other things. And, and I just remember being so moved with compassion. And, and I remember, I know for those of you who have been to Brazil, you know exactly what I mean. And, and so there's so many stories. I remember, you know, one of the guys that was there, he didn't have shoes. And so I remember, literally, I brought like three or four pairs of shoes. And so I remember taking my shoes off and, and leaving my shoes with him. I remember the next time, you know, a few times I came back, I would see him wearing those shoes. I know some of you have left boots and clothes and, and different things. But but that's being moved with compassion. That's seeing a need and saying, you know, God, I have far more than I could ever imagine. So me leaving shoes or me giving clothes or you, you know, showing acts of compassion is nothing compared to what God has done for us. This, this compassion is. It reveals for us this greater gratitude i remember I remember thinking about the things that i 'd never thought about before. I remember thinking about transportation and air conditioning and and things that we are they're normal for us and they 're almost expected right you know my our air conditioning our vehicle's acting up, and you know we 're getting somebody to look at it and so but you know we, we've joked we said you know you 're not supposed to have an air you 're not supposed to have to use an air conditioner in November, but you know we Live on the equator, apparently, and it's always hot here. Uh, but, but, you know, you, th- you take those things for granted, right? Oh, my air conditioner's not working in my car. Well, what if you don't have a car? And so it, what, what compassion causes us to do is it causes us to see things, I think, in a right manner. It reminds us of the gratitude that we ought to live with every day for the things that God has done for us. You see, I, I can easily give you examples of, of mud huts in Brazil, And maybe you've never been there. Maybe you'll never go to Brazil. But it doesn't change the fact that God calls us to be stirred in our hearts with compassion for the things that move his heart, right? And here's what I know moves God's heart, God's creation. Remember God said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, You see, that's what moves the heart of God. That's what stirred the heart of Cyrus, and that's what stirred the heart of the leaders of these families and the leaders of these churches, was that God was calling them to go back home, to go back where he had given them, he had granted them this promised land, and he's calling them to go back home. You see, the Bible says that the father's Rose up, the priests rose up. God convicted the heads of the houses, the priests to go back home, to return to temple worship. And when you and I allow our hearts to respond to conviction, when you allow, when we allow our hearts to respond to compassion, what happens is that we begin to experience the freedom of coming home. The freedom of coming home. You see, can you imagine? The excitement after 70 years of being in captivity. That, you know, some of their family members, some of their friends were murdered even before they were taken into captivity. Some of their friends have now died. Some of their family members have died in captivity. And now, after 70 years, they're going home. Can you imagine the feeling? Can you imagine the excitement? Can you imagine the anticipation as all of them began to trek back? Can you imagine the first group that went and thought, oh my goodness, I can't wait till my neighbor or my friend or my brother or my cousin or whatever, it comes in the next wave. They didn't know when they were coming or how they were coming, but the, anticip- the anticipation of that moment of them showing up and saying, look, here's where God redeemed us. Here's where God granted us all of these things. I will never take for granted what God has done for me, right? I remember, you know, the first time I came back to the United States after uh, going to Brazil. and I remember going through the uh, um, uh, Miami-Dade Airport, uh, the international airport there, and coming through customs and just... It's just like, I'm home. I'm here. You know, they were like, hey, don't lose your passport. And I said, look, I don't care what happens with my passport. Once I get on American soil, I am an American, right? What a blessing it is. And so it's the same thing for the, uh, for the Israelites, that when they go back to Jerusalem, when they leave exile and they're back into Jerusalem, imagine the excitement and the joy and the relief of being home, there's freedom that comes from that. You see, Ezra, this is fascinating, he uses the word house 60 times throughout the book. So as we go throughout the book of Ezra over 60 different times, Ezra uses the word house. In verses 2 through 7, which we've already read uh, this evening, he uses it six times alone. In just five verses, he uses the word house. If you get some time, go back and look at that. You see this house imagery that God is using it beckons the freedom of coming home. You see God desires for us that we would turn our hearts back to him through the difficulties that he allows. That's what he's teaching us through Ezra. That's what he's teaching the Israelites is that these difficulties that are allowed in our lives are to point towards him, that our hearts would always be moved towards him. In compassion, he draws us. In conviction, he draws us back towards where he wants us to be. And where is that? It's home. Just like I said at the very beginning, God's desire for us is that we would be in relationship with Him, to worship Him, and to depend upon Him. Isn't that what home is? That we love each other, that we depend upon each other? You know, we talk about our church as a family, that we love each other, that we depend upon each other, that we walk through difficulties with each other. That's what home is. You see, God's ultimate goal is to bring all of us home. One day, the trumpet will sound, the lights will be turned out, and and we'll go home in fellowship with the Lord, where we will experience what? What do you experience at home? Peace, security, security of love that you will find nowhere else. In Luke chapter 15, you know the story, the prodigal son, he had an inheritance He got what he thought was due to him. One brother stays home; the other brother goes off. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says that he squandered all of his inheritance to the point to where he was eating with pigs. And he thought to himself, "I just need to go home. I just need to go home." And what does the Bible tell us in Luke 15? The Bible says that he turned and he went home. And the Bible says that the father saw him. You've read it, Luke 15. He saw him from a distance. And what did he do? He, he, said, he ran to him, and he said, I love you, right? Essentially, he said, you're welcome home. And so the other brother hears about that, right? And he says, hey, what's going on out there? And, and look what it says, Luke 15, 27. So they're explaining to him what happened. They said, your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. You see, when we go home, That's where we find safety. That's where we find security. That's what it looks like for you and me. Now, you know, we can speak physically. We can say, you know, our homes are places of security and love, and that's what they should be. But even when we think spiritually, what does that look like for us spiritually coming home? It means that we return to what God intends for us. It means that we find our dependency in Him, that we rest in the security of who He is, that He loves me that I'm safe in the arms of God, right? That's what being home with the Lord means. You see, Ezra's not the story of one great man doing great things for God. You know, your story at the end is not gonna be about one great woman or one great man doing great things for God. That's not our story. And it's not Ezra's story either. You see, Ezra's story, my story, your story, is the story of God's people in our relentless struggle To survive in the midst of great opposition, and yet God will prevail. Right? Wouldn't you say that about your life? All the difficulties that you've come through so far in your life, but yet God's still writing your story. Why is that? It's because your story's not done, because your story is not about you, it's about Him. Amen? So every step of the way that we walk, we may be met with opposition. But be reminded that you will also be met with divine intervention. So as we continue to drill into the story of Esther, I hope you, uh, of Ezra, I hope you're challenged by the fact that complacency is not where God intends for you to stay, that God was calling you to be directed, to, to live with purpose. Because when, when you live with purpose, you accomplish the things that God has in store for you. And so the good news I want to leave you with tonight is that we have a heavenly Father waiting to receive us with open arms if we simply come home. If you're in captivity tonight, if self-absorption, if all those things that we talked about earlier, bitterness, has put you in captivity, selfishness, you know what God's doing? He's not pointing a, a, a finger of condemnation at you. You know what he's doing? He's opening his arms out wide and he's saying, son, come home. Daughter, come home. I love you. In spite of all that the Israelites had done, do you notice the irony in this story already? That in spite of all of their failures, in spite of the warnings, in spite of uh, the consequences to their actions, God loves them enough to allow them to yet still return back to their home. And the same is true for you. You can never send too much far from God. You can never go too far from God. You can never do or say anything too far from God. Why is that? Because the story in Luke 15 with the prodigal son reminds us that God is still always there waiting in anticipation with open arms. Amen? What a great God that we serve. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the example of Ezra. God, thank you that you did not forget your people.